Amen. We'll start you off with a little quiz. You know, you love a little quiz. Anybody know who this is? Don't all answer at once. It's fine. What? It's Leicester City Football Club. Be more specific. What year was this photograph taken, do you think? When they won the league. We can tell who the football fan is. 2015-2016. This, folks, is the Leicester City football team. Now, do we know what they did? Don't answer, Michael. <laughs> you have no idea. Way they won the Premier League. They won the Premier League. In 2016, this group of players won the Premier League, literally, against all odds. Against all odds. They became part of a very select group. Up until that time, 25 years, only five teams had won that trophy. And one of them once, the rest of the period was over four teams, the big four, if you like. And when that season started, the expectation was simply the same, that one of those big teams would indeed go ahead and they would win the league as had happened. Leicester had their own squad assembled, but the big teams, those that had won it over time and time again, had millions and millions of pounds spent on the players, where Leicester had assembled a team of, of cast-offs and uh, players that didn't make it with some of the bigger teams that came down to Leicester. Oftentimes, when this team was playing against some of the other big teams during that season, the value of the players on the substitutes bench of the big team was often more than the value of the entirety of the team of Leicester that was playing on that pitch on that, that day. So Leicester were um, a small uh, club with a, a very low budget team that was put together. Um, again, they were even fortunate to be in the league that year because the previous year they were close to relegation, getting pushed down a division and not being able to play in the prestige uh, competition. So with all that said, the bookmakers rated the chances of Leicester winning the Premier League in the 2015 and 2016 season 5,000 to 1. So if you were a bet, any, any people that bet in here? You're meant to say no if you're a Christian, so that's a test. But if there's any, any, any betters in, 5,000 to 1. That, you know, that's, that's £10 in that. What's that? It's not a bad sum of money, you know, if, uh, if you're in the money like that. So what did they do? And, and people have looked at this. People have studied this. From a, a, not a footballing point of view, but from a team point of view. Because Leicester couldn't compete with the money, and they couldn't compete with the standard of players. So what they, they did was they played a brand of football that was unique to them, that every person knew their role, and every person performed their role and performed it well. They had a manager that knew how to encourage them and play with what he had and encourage each one of those players to put their best effort in in the role that he had given them. And people have studied this to see how they achieved the unachievable. 
And everybody has come together and said it is simply this. It is a collaborative effort of a team, each one playing for each other, knowing the plan, knowing the purpose, and going out and doing it. Effectively, they were greater than the sum of their parts. So how did they do it? What would I say? One word to describe how this group of individuals came together as a team and achieved something great that has gone down. And, and, and people say it probably won't be replicated again. One word. Unity. 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 The essential aspect of collaborative work The essential aspect of a team is unity. Unity. Now, you go back in history and you will see that the Romans achieved the Pax Romana. Their military force was such a military force because of unity. How they fought, how they maneuvered, how they conquered the world was based on that unified military effort. So... As we get into uh, Ephesians chapter 4, this is, 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 a, is a halfway point. This letter is divided up into two parts. The first part is doctrinal. We've looked at all that great theology about our position in Christ and who we are, how we're brought near by the blood. And then we get to chapter 4, and, and there's now a change where we move from doctrine to practice. We move from orthodoxy, I like these words, so you're going to get them again. Orthodoxy, right, right uh, worship of God. And that's doctrinal. And now we move to the practical. Orthopraxy, right practice. And these are essential things in the Christian faith. Remember this, the triangle? And I'm going to try and cement this a little bit and, and formulate this as part of the values of this church is that there's three aspects to the Christian life. There's the right worship of God, right doctrine. There's the right practice of that right doctrine. And there's the right passion behind the practice of that doctrine. These three things are essential in a balanced walk with the Lord, that we have the right doctrine, we do the right things because of that doctrine, and we're doing that because of the right reasons. Our heart for God becomes our heart for people. It's essential, these three things. So Paul, when he writes his letters, he goes doctrinal and then he goes practical. And he builds in these platforms. And encompassing it all is the right passion. Paul had a heart for God. And he tries to transfer that to us as we read the scriptures. So we now make this change and we move into the, the, the practical side of it. And it's interesting to me that as Paul begins to move into practice, he starts with unity. Because there's great power in unity. As we've seen with the Leicester City football team, that unity allowed them to achieve something great. And I believe for the church today, if we can have true unity, we can do great things. Great things. So now we move into the practical and, and look at verse 1 of Ephesians 4, which tells us how Paul begin, you know, begins the chapter. He says, I therefore, which is important, because what he's saying is, Because of all this doctrinal truth, all this great truth of who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, this is now what we're to do. I therefore, and notice also he says, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech 
you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein you're called. And the interesting thing to me here, and other commentators echo this thought, is that Paul uses that word beseech, which is, which is implore, plead. It's one of the highest forms in the, in the Greek language of, of, of asking somebody to do something. And he doesn't bring in his apostolic authority. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the apostle, selected and elected by God, I'm telling you to do this. He says, I, Paul, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. So again, this is not a workspace system. This is simply who we're to be. This is our calling. And, you know, I love how Paul just says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a worker. I'm a soldier. I'm one of you. And because of all these great truths, I'm applying this truth. And I'm calling out to you and imploring you to do the same. Not because I have some office. Because of who I am in Christ and who you are in Christ. It's beautiful. So this is the the platform now where we get into all this practical stuff of how we're to work out the great truths of the theology. And, and, And this is the thing. This is where we lose people within Christendom. I'm going to cut them off at chapter 3. Because I've met so many Christians. So many Christians that want to talk to me about theology. That want to uh, prove some little aspect of their little hidden truth. Of how they know so much more. Because they've studied out this one thing and dedicated their lives to it. And they want to talk about this and talk about that. I had somebody this week, I hope they're not listening, I'm not being offensive, send me a message on Facebook asking about how, who we baptize in, what name is it. You know, that's a load of question. If you're, if you're in the theology, you know it's a load of question. You know what they're up to. So many people like that. And they're, they're Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. But when we get to Ephesians chapter 4 and we move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, we lose them. Why? Because they never practice their faith. They can tell you all the books of the Bible. They can quote all these things. But when you look at their lives, there's no evidence of that faith working out. That's a waste of faith. It's a waste of theology. Because true theology is always practiced. Let me say that again, church. I want you to hear this. True theology is always practiced. So if you're not practicing your theology, you don't have true theology. It's not right worship of God. Because right worship of God leads to the right practice of that worship. Paul brings us in, brings us here to chapter 4, and now we launch into this truth of how we outwork and practice our faith. This is what Weiss says in his summary, and, and I like his, his, his look on the Greek. He says, but he says basically uh, this. He says, in brief, God says in chapters 1 to 3, I've made you a saint. In chapters 4 to 6, he says, now live a saintly life. And this is what we're going to see, this change in the doctrinal truth. So that's what verse 1 begins with. Notice then verse 2 tells us how we're to pursue this calling, this vocation, this life calling. Verse 2, with all loneliness 
and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That we're to walk worthy of our calling, and this is how we're to do it, with all lowliness, humility, and action in mind. Meekness, power under control. Long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, Paul's going to get on to this unity that's required, but this is a kind of an essential thing, forbearing one another. Seeing that we're not all the same, that we have our quirks and our foibles, and all of us have little different personality traits, but we've got to forbear one another. As we pursue our calling, as we walk worthy, and this is the tension in verse 3 there. says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavoring literally means uh, study. It means do your best. It's the same that's used in study to show thyself approved in, in 2 Timothy. So we, what, what Paul's saying is here that we're in the school of God where the chief subject and curriculum is Christ. And, in the, and as we learn about him, as we grow in him, we, as others around, we look to each other and we see things at times that we don't like or we don't disagree with or whatever it is. But we have to endeavor, we have to do our best to keep the unity of the spirit. We need to work at that unity. It's not achieved automatically. We've got to work at it. Just like Leicester City football team had to work at it. You know, that was a team that went on the pitch and performed. But if you were to get them all together and say, you know, did you get on with everybody, particularly were they your best buddies? No, this guy, this guy rubbed me up the wrong way at times. Our personalities didn't, didn't mesh. But when we were on the field, we were together, we were unified. So we're to fight for this unity, walk worthy, that's action. With all lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, that's attitude. And then verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the peace. And again, that's balance. It's worth something that we need to fight for to keep it. When we're unified, we're strong. We are better together when we work together. There's no doubt about that. Jesus himself, Matthew 12, you don't have to turn there, said, And Jesus knew their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And it's no different for us as a local church. Unity is to be sought after. Unity is to be protected. Now, before we get into the, 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 the points as we look through, as Paul's going to point us to these one, uh, seven ones that we're going to see, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, baptism, one God and Father of all. We're going to look at that. But before we do that, and our central topic is unity this morning, I want to interject, before we get any funny ideas, that this is not unity at all costs. That's important. That's important. Where do we start in our little triangle? Orthodoxy. Right worship of God. Right doctrine. That leads to right practice. J.C. Ryle said this, Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. 
It is the very unity of hell. Luther said, Cursed be that unity for which the word of God is put at stake. So yes, we're talking about unity. Yes, I'm going to pour us to unity. Yes, I'm going to call us to unity. But it has to be biblical unity. Not just unity for unity's sake. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. It has to be built on foundational, biblical, theological framework. That's how we unify together in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. In and through the word. You can't separate those two. So before we get into these seven ones of unity that Paul's going to talk about and how these are great examples of it, I want us to know that, that it's not unity at all costs. It's true unity. It's biblical unity based on foundational principles. So what's our first thought then this morning? And we'll just go through these kind of quickly. Paul tells us, first four, there is one body. Now, when we look at Christendom today, what do we see? We see state churches, we see independent churches, we see liberal churches, we see conservative churches, we see divisions in doctrine, divisions on practices, divisions on music, divisions on decor. And this is before we even add cults and isms into the realm of Christendom. So it's very easy to look from a a secular worldview, from human eyes, and look at what's called the church today and say that it's so divided. How could it ever be unified? And from man's perspective, that's true. But what does God see? Only one church. Only one body. There's only one true body of Christ. This is the church universal. Only one. There are multiples, there are denominations within it, there are simply believers who are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that have literally had the blood applied. These are those that, as Paul's told us in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, who were sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. This is this theological truth that Paul's been talking about, chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's now saying that there's one body. And that body, as seen by God, is each and every believer, no matter what denomination, no matter what church they're in, no matter where they're in in the world, the believer that has repented, that has come before God with nothing in their hands, that simply says to the Creator God, save my soul because I'm a sinner, I know I deserve your punishment, there's nothing I can do. And God steps in this great transaction where the hand of grace reaches down, the hand of faith reaches up, and in that mystery and in that majesty, God, through his Holy Spirit, brings the Spirit alive, and now that person is placed in the body of Christ. That is the one body. And the qualification is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. One in Christ. All who are saved are put into this one body. So no matter what we see in the world today, what God sees is one church, one body, with local manifestations of it. I like what John Phillips says in his commentary in Ephesians. He says this, The shared life of Christ may be expressed in diverse ways, but wherever a person belongs to the body, that life is there. 
It makes no difference whether the believer is young or old, gifted or slow, wise or foolish, high church or low church, enlightened or confused, victorious or defeated. What matters is that the life of Christ is present. That is one body unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts, he says there's one body. He also says there in verse 4 that there's one spirit, one body, one spirit. Now, the scriptures tell us that there are many false spirits. So turn with me, get your Bibles going. We'll get you to do a little bit of work. Uh, 1 John chapter 4. One John chapter four and verse number one. <clears throat> one John four one, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hereby you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of. God. So we live in a world where there are many false spirits, many uh, uh, spirit-led uh, things that will take us away from the one spirit. But when we come to God, we know there is only one Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.4 4 says, one spirit. It's the one spirit that brings us alive in Christ, that puts us in the one body. What I want you to see in these three that we're looking at is the role of the spirit in this. So we are put into the body because we are quickened by the spirit. And it's the one spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. This is the theological truth Paul's talked about in Ephesians 1, 2, 3. He's now making practical and he's talking about unity. He says there's one body. He says there's one spirit. Ephesians 2.18. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. One spirit, one body. Singular, unified so both in Corinthians and in Ephesians, one spirit is identified as the basis and foundation for the unity of the church. Because this is what we're talking about, this great unity. Paul's talking about the body, but he's talking about the spirit. And the spirit is involved in putting you in the body. One body, one spirit. And then thirdly, Paul says... One hope, even as, this is Ephesians 4, 4, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. This hope is a byproduct of the Spirit's enabling power as he brings unity to the church. The Spirit is the basis of our unity because that's where it starts, is it brings us alive, places us into the body. And then our calling in Christ is the basis of our hope. One hope of your calling. See, all believers have common hope. All believers. The second coming of Christ. Now, people may be confused and have different views on, on some of the events leading up to these things. And we know that we've got the right view. Amen. Amen. <sighs> Dear old. <laughs> Dear old. All right. I thought we were unified in this. <clears throat> 
But what we all have in common, no matter where, where your kind of eschatological thoughts are, we all believe that Jesus is coming again. That's our one hope, the return of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit is involved in this eschatological, this end time hope that we have. Look at, and Paul's talked about this. Look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 14, or verse 13 actually. Read verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says, In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that one Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance, is the, the down payment, if you like, until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of his glory. So the Spirit is involved in this hope that we have of the return of Christ. The Spirit is the down payment, the comforter, the paraclete. John 14 that the Lord sent is the down payment that the Lord is coming again. To the redemption of the purchased possession. That's us. So our future hope has a final inheritance in heaven, but it's anchored in the present reality of our, our place in Christ. But the Spirit is, is at work in this present reality, helping us in the hope that we have to know that what we have now is an evidence of what's to come. And because of that, we have hope. So have we have these three things that Paul starts when he starts to talk about unity, one body, one spirit, one hope. And hopefully I've brought out to you this morning the role of the spirit in this. Because what we're going to now see is we're, we've, what we've got in these, these two, three verses, verses four <clears throat> to verse number six, is three threes. We have a triad of trinity. And what we're going to see is the son, we're going to see the Father and we're going to see the, we've seen the Holy Spirit. This is the first of the three where we see the Holy Spirit presented, one body, one spirit, one hope. We now move on and we get to our next one where we have one Lord, verse number five of Ephesians 4. And this is the truth. We only have one confession as the body of Christ and that is simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul emphasizes in Ephesians particularly the lordship of Christ. Over 20 times it's mentioned his exalted position. And this is what this title is, Lord. Curios in the Greek means ruler. And when we call him Lord, Curios, we are saying he's ruler. He's sovereign. He's over us. He's the head of this one body. That we don't have many lords. We don't have many rulers. We have one ruler. One lord. This title is a reflection of the exalted nature of Christ. When you say lord. You're referencing him in his majesty. His exalted nature. Above all. Beyond all. Sovereign. King. Ruler. Supremely omnipotent. All powerful and all knowing. He is God. Over all. One Lord, not many, one. Unity, singular unity. Not like Hinduism, 
many lords. One Lord. This is the unity that is Christ. It is reflected in him. So we say one Lord. And this is the beginning of this next section where we've moved from the Spirit to the Son. One Lord. Next one. One baptism. Now, again, some commentators think that this baptism that's being spoken of here in verse number 5 is um, spirit baptism. But actually, I think this is water baptism. Reasons I think that it's water baptism is, number one, the majority of commentators fall on that side. But number two is that Paul is talking here about this practical thing. He's talking about the one faith, and we're going to see that that is not your confession, but that is the body of Christian teaching, the one faith passed down for all. And it's the same with, with baptism. And you think, well, why, why, why is this um, important on, and the difference between the two? Why are you leaning towards the fact that it's water baptism um, that's more uh, in line here? Well, particularly because I think that it, 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 it points us to this in terms of where we stand. So, in the time that this was wrote, when Paul wrote all those uh, years ago, there was not, when we talk about water baptism, there wasn't different forms of it. There wasn't infant baptism. That the early church practiced adult believers Baptism by immersion. And this, this baptism was an event that probably, if we're honest, for us today in the Western world, doesn't have the same connotations to it. Now we do it, we gather, and we have baptism services, and we, we do it as we see biblically it should be done. But it doesn't carry quite the weight that it would have in those times. Because in those times... Baptism wasn't done in a nice church building with a nice warm thing. It was done publicly. And it was meant to be done publicly. And it was done where there was running water. Again, that's biblical. It comes from Judaism and the mikvahs. But it was done where people would see. And when we speak of unity, there's no saving merit in that process. But what it is, is the step where the inward change is declared publicly. Now for us, when we do this today, it doesn't really put us in a position in Milton Baptist Church where if you come and you get baptized and you do it publicly, that you could face death because of that. There's no great personal risk. But in those times, when the early church was being what? Hunted. Hunted. By Paul and others before he gets saved. Hunted. Put in jail. Put to death. That you were a pariah of society. Now, if you get saved and the group of believers, the only ones that know about that, you're pretty safe. But when you take that step of baptism publicly, as the crowd gathers, and that's what's to be, is a public declaration that I am unified with Christ. I am a, I'm his. That's a different ballgame in that context. That's really stepping up and showing that you belong to him and you're not afraid of any consequence to claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in our Western context where we sit, not really, not really has the same gravitas, really. We're not really putting our lives in the line. Now, there are places in the world today where they are putting their lives in the line. If you're in a, a, an Islamic nation and you want to get baptized publicly, that's going to mean some things for you. Changes things. So that this idea of water baptism here, it's not like this context where actually it doesn't mean that much. This is a bit ceremonial. When Paul's writing, he's talking about this one baptism. He's talking about one, one baptism in the realms of unity. He's saying this is the really where the rubber meets the road in the practice of your theology. That you step out and you tell the world, I belong to Christ and I am willing to die for him if that is what it means. It's a big change. It's a big difference. This is what Philip says again about this. He says, this one baptism effectively separated the believers from the world. In many instances, it was a crucial test of a person's faith. It was the ultimate confession that could cost him his job, his family, his friends, and sometimes even his life. It still remains a test in some cultures, in Muslim lands, among some Jews, and even in some so-called Christian lands. Believers can pay a high price for being baptized. So this baptism, it really is pointing us towards unity because it's a declaration that I am in the body, one body, one spirit, one hope. I have one Lord and this one baptism given by him, water baptism, is a declaration that I'm part of that team. That's what baptism is. You're telling people who you belong to. You're telling people that you're in Christ. So we've looked at one spirit, the Holy Spirit, which one body, one spirit, one hope. That's our first three. We're moving on to one Lord, one baptism. The third of the threes is one faith. And notice it says one faith. And again, some people think this is subjective, referring to our own personal faith, our moment of salvation. But I don't think this is what this is talking about. This is very practical stuff. I think here Paul's talking about the faith. The Christian faith confessed as a set of beliefs and doctrines. The foundational faith. Paul goes on, look at verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, Till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. He says, till we all come to the unity of the faith, singular. Colossians chapter number 1, verse 23. Paul again says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. So he says there, if you continue in the faith, in Galatians, Paul writes again in chapter number 1 and verse 23, But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 9, Holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience. And then Jude, as he writes in Jude verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, 
It was needful for me to write unto you to exhort that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So there's only one faith, and that one faith is in Christ Jesus. He is the center of all Christian belief. He is the unifier. This is why doctrine is important, because that is the faith. Our faith is a set of doctrines that has been passed down and given to us from the early church all the way through. And, the, and, and our faith is in the, the content of that, the one that holds it all together, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the be-all and end-all of everything. One commentator says this as a little kind of analogy about faith. and He says, faith is only as valid as its object. You could have tremendous faith in very thin ice and drown. You could have very little faith in very thick ice and be perfectly secure. So faith is only as valid as its object, and the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. That this foundational truth is in him and based on him. One hope, one Lord, one baptism. I've missed the point up there, but it is one faith. should have been in there. And then finally, so we've, we've looked at these threes. One body, one spirit, one hope. That's the Holy Spirit. That's that first triad of Trinity. Then you get into the second one. There's one Lord, one baptism, and one faith. That should be point six. Which brings us to the Son. That's our next Trinity. And then the final one, which is point six there, which should have been point seven, is our next set of three. And this is, there is one God. Look at verse six of Ephesians four. One God and Father of all, he is above all and through all and in you all. One God and Father of all. So now we deal with the Father. We've had the Spirit, we've had the Son. Now we deal with the Father. And that concept as God as Father is a primarily a New Testament truth. It's not non-existent in the Old Testament, but it's not as revealed in the Old Testament as it is in the New so you'll get verses like Malachi 2.10 that says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? But when you get into the New Testament, this progressive revelation, as we move on and God reveals more of himself, he's revealed as Father, firstly by Jesus, who says at the temple, 12 years old, Wished ye not that I be about my Father's business. He goes on later on to teach the disciples how to pray, says in Matthew 6, verse 9, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father. So that truth is in the Old Testament, but it's not, not expounded. You get into the New Testament, and Jesus brings us in this, this progressive revelation of who God is and who we are and the relationship we can have with him, and brings it in. Paul then goes on to build upon that foundation where he writes in Romans 8, 15, For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to, to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, great Daddy. It's, a, it's this relationship in and through grace. So we have God, the Father, introduced, and then it says, verse 6 of Ephesians 4, Who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Now this is similar to what Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six. 
where he says, For of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And of course he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul, the very same writer, is writing about God the Father and says practically the very same thing. Because this is not division. There's not multiple lords. There's not multiple gods. There's one God. This is Trinitarian. These verses are absolutely filled with Trinity. And Paul sees no difference between saying that all things are in and of and through Christ and all things are in and of and through one God and Father of all. It's Trinity put together. And when he says, this is the, the three, so we have the three of above all, that's one, through all, that's two, and in all is three. So in these passages, and I know that I've got those slides wrong, that you have one to six, which is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, and then you have number seven, one God. Three threes. The spirit, body, spirit, hope. The Lord Jesus Christ, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, and then you have one Father, one God over all. And when it says God who is above all, this is his transcendence. It says God who is through all, this is his omnipotence, he's all-powerful. And this God that is in you all, this is omnipresence. Again, this is Trinitarian, because we know the Spirit dwells within us. We know Christ dwells within us. But the Father also dwells within you. Why? God, three and one, one and three. Unity in the midst of diversity. Trinitarian. Unity is a Trinitarian principle. It's a God principle. And the thought is really beyond all thought that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all at home in our hearts because he is God. The Spirit is God. The Son is God. The Father is God. Unity in the Godhead bodily. So these verses, these six verses that springboard us into practice, Paul starts... He's going to encourage us about unity, but I want you to get this. This is where he starts. The very person and being of God as a presentation of unity. That if we're to be like God and to be like Christ, we have to be unified together. That's part of who God is. God is unity. But in that unity, we have the Father and his purposes. And the Father and his actions. And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And his response to the Father's purposes. And his actions. And then we have the Holy Spirit. As the enabler and the equipper. All involved in creation. All involved in salvation. All involved in glorification. All involved in the return. It's unity. And when we look at who God is. And we see that there's diversity, but yet this wonderful, glorious unity. That is our platform for why we are to be unified. Because that's who God is. God is not divided. God is unified. And in every step, 
from Genesis to Revelation, as you read through, you will see a unified God. That's our platform as we move forward into unity. Now, this unity, the the impetus is, is vertical. It comes from God. But we have to then work it out horizontally as we look at each other. (coughs) Doing it with God is the easy bit. Doing it with each other is the bit that we have to endeavor. We have to work at this. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to work with our unity with God. But I'm saying we have to really work when we involve others in the community of God. It's a glorious unity, but it demands lives of humility and patience. See, we enter in, as new believers, we enter into this unity that God creates. The one body, one spirit, one home. As we enter into that through the power of the spirit, we're really confessing that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And all of that is an acknowledgement that there's one God, one Father, above all, beyond all, in on, in all, and through all. So unity is to be strived for. As we close, I want to take you back to Leicester. Their success was achieved through unity. It's an essential part. If that unity was taken away from that team, that team would have never achieved what it went on to do. So as believers today, as the church, and I look at across the church wide, our work is hampered by our disunity. It just is. Our global witness is hampered by our disunity. It is. Now, again, we have to be doctrinally unified, but we get divided over things that are not worth dividing over. And then there are others that don't divide over the things that they should divide over. But it hampers our work. But Paul says, Ephesians 4.1, I beseech you that you walk worthy of your calling. He calls upon us to walk in this unity, to pursue that unity, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And he says you need to work at this, you need to walk in this, and you need to pursue this. So here's my little point of application that I want you to take away. Now this is cheesy. As soon as I wrote this, and I'm sure it's not original with me, but as I wrote this, I thought this is so cheesy. But, This is true. This is your application from all of this. There may be no I in team. You've heard that before, if you've been in any form of workplace. There's no I in team. But there is a you in unity. What do I mean by that? That you have personal responsibility for unity. That I have personal responsibility for unity. That each one of us is responsible, as we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk worthy of that calling wherein you're called. As Paul says, verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Leicester City football team, the manager could cast a vision. And he could say, I want us to be unified as a team. 
that our goal, put it on paper, is to be a unified body that we all know our place, our purpose, and what we're doing, and we do it well together. And as a team, you're going to have to deal with different personality types for the greater good. The manager can say it all he wants. But the only way that unity was realized was that each individual walked worthy of that calling. So here's what I'm saying to you the church, this morning, church. Is that unity is to be pursued because it is the very identity of who God is. And we are to reflect him. And he has called us to unity. So we have to pursue it. But that begins with you and it begins with me. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. We have to do it together. And if we do it together and we work together as the body of Christ, because that's who God is. He is unified, Father, Son, and Spirit, allowing diversity within that unity, no more all different. We work together, and we go into the purposes that God has for us in 2024, unified. I want to say to you this morning, that is a glorious unity, and God will do glorious things with glorious unity. problem is our hearts will pull us away from unity because our hearts are self-centered selfish and we really oftentimes just think about ourselves so my challenge is you leave and I've got some um, go deeper sheets I've put it on the whatsapp there's some printed copies there and there's some reflective questions in there about my part in unity and your part in unity let's not Divide. Because when we divide, we're weak. Let's come together. Let's fight for one another and fight for that unity. Because in unity, there's strength. And in the glorious unity of the Godhead bodily, we can achieve everything that He wants for us in 2024. <laughs>